Good morning. Thanks for coming and worshiping with us today. We're uh, excited to have you here and thanking God for what he's done already this morning. It's a big day for our church. We're going to start our service off a little bit differently today, so hang with me, and I think you'll uh, see where we're going in just a few minutes. I don't know if you're like me. When our family travels, we usually seek uh, a budget hotel to stay in along the way, something that meets our budget and saves some vacation dollars for when we get where we want to go. But let's just imagine you didn't need to do that. What if you didn't want to do a budget hotel, but you were traveling somewhere and you wanted to just blow the top off? Maybe you would go to the presidential suite at the plaza in New York City. This is a place for just $15,000 a night. Just $15,000 a night. You could have the two-level presidential suite, which is the whole 18th floor of the hotel, you have access to the rooftop area, 7,800 square feet, two living rooms, a parlor, a library, six bedrooms, and seven bathrooms. Seven bathrooms. If you need to go anywhere, there's a Rolls Royce with a chauffeur ready to take you wherever you want to go. And if you need a snack in the middle of the night, there's a chef on call. Just pick up the phone and he will be there. Or you could go still in New York to the, the St. Regis with their presidential suite is a little bit cheaper, $10,500 a day. Gives you three bedrooms, four and a half baths, a view of Central Park, oriental rugs, silk wall coverings. When there's no moderation, when there's no constraint, why not have seven bathrooms? You know, if you, why not have six bedrooms? Why not have a chef? Why not have a chauffeur who could take you in the Rolls Royce wherever you want to go? I'm going to encourage you this morning as we begin this worship service to have an extravagant approach to what we're talking about. I'm going to ask you to blow the top off. I'm going to ask you to throw off all restraints to have an extravagant lifestyle, maybe such an extravagant lifestyle that the people around you will think you're a little bit crazy and you're not quite, not quite connecting all the dots. Because how can you live that way? How can you stay in that kind of a hotel room? Now the story we're going to look at real briefly right now in Mark chapter four, 14, verses 1 through 9, I think backs me up on this. Now I'm not telling you to go rent a hotel room for $15,000. I'm talking about extravagant, no holds barred, blow the top off, no restraints worship. That's what we find in Mark chapter 14. We're going to start back in Mark this week and kind of pushing towards Jesus' sacrifice for us. Our journey through Mark has been going for quite a while. But verse 3 informs us here, Jesus is coming back into the area of Jerusalem, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is happening, so it's a big party atmosphere. He stops at the home of Simon the leper. We don't know much about Simon, but maybe this is someone who Jesus healed. Maybe it's someone who Jesus ministered to. But Jesus is staying there. The some of the leaders had already begun scheming against him. He had this big pull with people really, really for him and the leaders against him, anticipating the Passover celebration. Uh, it was customary when you got together for a meal, if there was someone really, really important, for there to be some recognition of this important person at the table. And it was usually by anointing them, pouring some special ointment or perfume over their head. What happened here, and we don't know the woman's name from, from this account in Mark, the woman remains anonymous, but as they're seated around the table at Simon the Leopard's home, this woman comes in 
And she has this jar of perfume, an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, the kind of perfume that would be sealed for its safety. Verse 3 tells us that she broke that bottle and she poured it over the head of Jesus as he sat there at the table in adoration and in worship. And there are people in the room who looked at that and saw this woman pour this really expensive, probably worth a year's wages, bottle of perfume out for him. It actually broke the bottle. You're not going to put it back. And poured it on him, and they mumbled and they said, what could have been done with this? The poor, how many poor people could we have fed with this? And then Jesus sort of chastised them and says, she's done a beautiful thing to me. He went on to explain how the poor would always be around, but his time with them is limited. And then in a prophetic voice, he said, she's actually not just anointing me because I'm the special guest at this table, but she's also pointing out that this is, this is something of a, an anointing, a burial anointing for me. She's preparing my body for burial. So all, almost, it's not said so much in the text, but it's like he's been teaching all this stuff and disciples kind of get it a little bit and don't. This woman has obviously been a really good student. And she's heard what Jesus has been saying about what he's doing and the sacrifice he's going to make. And she brings this expensive jar of perfume and pours it out on his head. She had accepted his mission, his promises, this kingdom of God coming. So as we follow Christ on the path of discipleship, I think the question we need to ask, and even this morning, is what is our extravagant worship going to look like? When we bring our worship here in this room, or not just our worship together in corporate setting, but our worship of obedience, our worship of living, our worship of reaching out to our neighbors as we've been talking about, our worship of surrender and being the people that God wants us to be through our obedience and prayers and relationships. How extravagant is our worship? Just a couple lessons and then we're going we're gonna to do some singing this morning. I think extravagant worship exceeds the limits of human reason. And by that I don't mean that worship, extravagant worship is unreasonable. There's very, it's reasonable to worship the God who created us and who redeems us. By, ex, by blowing the top off of human reason, I'm thinking about some of the principles of if you want to be first, you're going to be last. If you want to be great, you're going to be a servant of all. If you want to be rich, you're going to give away everything you have. If you're going to make an impact, you're going to be humble. That's the kind of unreasonableness or counterintuitiveness that, that this extravagant worship brings to us. I mean, she could have put just a few drops of perfume on his head, right? She had this whole bottle worth a year's wages, probably would have made an impact. I'm just going to pour half of it on, and I'm going to put the rest on the shelf because I might need it later. But no, she breaks the bottle. No, there's, no, there's nowhere to go. So the question I have for you today is, what's the alabaster jar in your life? What's the alabaster jar in your life? What are you holding on to? What are you holding back? Maybe your jar is your personal ambition. You're trying to follow him, but you also know you have your kind of bet hedged on where you want to go and what you want to do in your life. Your comfort, your wealth, your financial security, your relationships, your parenting, your school goals, your career goals, all can be that alabaster jar. Another lesson is extravagant worship includes your whole life. Everything about you is worship. This woman gave it all. All her chips were in on Jesus here. 
Her attention was less on her prized perfume and more on Jesus. Until we bring those alabaster jars of our lives and break them and anoint Jesus with them and declare he's the one who we're putting all of our trust in, he's the one who we're looking toward, he's the one where we're giving all of our hope, then we're not really living the full abundant life. The fullness of life in Christ comes when we surrender everything. He's ready to accept our brokenness. And the third lesson that we draw here is that extravagant worship promotes a gospel witness. Jesus said that this woman and what she did, this is going to be told all over the place for all the rest of human history because she's modeling for us what it means to bring everything and live our lives in discipleship and total obedience and total commitment to Jesus Christ. Having discovered that secret I can let my friends know I'm not, I'm not ruffled when hardship comes because this is Jesus' life. I'm more content. In the late 1990s, there was a pastor in England who wanted to teach his congregation the meaning of worship. In his, in his assessment, the people in his church had really become stale in their worship. They weren't really worshiping. So he just said across the board, we're going to stop singing altogether in our worship services. There'll be no more singing in our church until we get our worship thing right and we start figuring out what it really means to worship Jesus. And so there was no singing at all in this church. By the end of this period of time where they were trying to figure out what real worship is, the, the worship leader in that church was so moved that he got a vision and he wrote this song. And here's the song that he wrote as his church was not singing so they could figure out what it really means to, to break this alabaster jar and worship. Here's what he wrote. When the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it. It's all about you. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you've required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it when it's all about you. Let's stand and sing. Yesterday had the privilege of officiating a wedding for a really neat young couple that was held outside and property in the home of the parents of the groom, beautiful wooded area, all decorated. When we got there on, on site, not just set up for the wedding, but for the party afterwards. And, and most weddings have a lot more energy and planning going in. What's that banquet going to be? What's the fellowship going to be afterwards? And this was huge. So we had plenty of food, plenty of drinks, all the decorations. And as we were after the, after the ceremony celebrating with this couple and with all the friends and family that were there, uh, and the, in the moments that we're celebrating and having our meal, it would be interrupted with someone 
sharing a toast or talking about this young couple in their growing up years and what it used to be like and how they met. And then there were times where we'd be talking about what we look forward to from them and can't wait to see what happens in their marriage. And then there were times where like, isn't this an incredible day? Both, all three of those were involved. Looking back and thinking, wow, how cool the past has been that's brought us here. Looking forward to what we anticipate and how great this day is. That's what happens at most banquets. That's what happens when we celebrate. And we're going to be looking at that in Mark 14, at that kind of a, a banquet. If you want to turn there, Mark 14, verses 10 through 26 is going to be the passage we're going to be looking at. If you have your Bibles or if you use the YouVersion Bible app, you can go to events at First Free Church and you can find it there. I'm going to read all of these verses and then we're going to talk about them. So it's a little longer passage than we normally would do, but since we're above average group, we're going to hang in there and, and read it. Let me pray and then we'll look into the Word of God together. Father, we're about to read what we look at as the scriptures in the Bible, and we can become acquainted with it and familiar with it and, and think, yeah, I know that story, and miss what your Holy Spirit wants to say to us. So even as we begin to read these verses from Mark's gospel, we pray that your Holy Spirit would use the words of scripture, the comments I make, the whole experience of this worship service to help us to encounter you and to know your truth and how we can live it out to be the men and women of the church that you've called us to be. Amen. Mark 14, I'm going to start reading with verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard that it, why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So Jesus sent two of them ahead into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. As he enters the house, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a room that's already set up. That is where you should prepare the meal. So the two disciples went into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve. As they were eating at the table, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one? He replied, it is one of you twelve who is eating with me from this bowl, for the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took some of the bread and he blessed it. He broke it in pieces and he gave it to his disciples saying, take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as the sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. One of Jesus' closest team members takes opportunity here to capitalize on his dissatisfaction with Jesus. 
There's a lot we don't know about Judas Iscariot. A lot of speculation, a lot of inferences from things we do know about him, but there's a lot of mystery surrounding Judas Iscariot. The Gospels reveal Jesus calling Judas. Judas was one of his followers. He was a part of the team, actually had responsibility, committed to the team. As Passover celebration drew near, the religious leaders the tension was growing and they wanted to get rid of Jesus, but the crowds were often favorable toward him, so it was a little tricky. So they had to find a way to get him away from the crowds so they could either arrest him or charge him or do something. And Judas must have heard that and known that. Maybe they talked about it. And for whatever reason, his dissatisfaction with Jesus led him to conspire with these religious leaders to find an opportune time where he could turn Jesus over to them, where they could find him without a lot of people around. Here's how John describes what happened in Judas' heart. We don't know, we don't know Judas' internal struggle. Uh, There must have been some internal struggle between this Jesus who he's followed for these years and who he's heard teach and was committed to and now wanting to turn him over. Here's how John describes it in John 13. Jesus responded, it is the one to whom I give this bread I dip in the bowl. When he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. And none of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. So we don't know a lot. Satan entered him. Judas maybe had his own ambitions. Jesus in this text even says the scriptures are going to be fulfilled here. So there's a lot of um, puzzlement about Judas and what actually was going on there. But back to our account in Mark 14, Judas had consulted these leaders ready to turn him over. So we're at this meal, and on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, it says in verse 12, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples ask, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover meal? Uh, This is the feast of unleavened bread, Passover, and there's some discussion about what day this actually was. Was was this the actual day of Passover, the Passover meal, or was it a pre-Passover meal? What was it? And the, the accounts in the Gospels really give us a couple of different settings, and when you look at the calendar, it can be a little confusing. I don't want to oversimplify it, but sometimes we have Christmas dinner the day before Christmas. And we celebrate real Christmas the day before Christmas. And Passover was something that was celebrated not just this day, but this experience. So somehow Jesus is saying, the disciples are saying Passover meal. And that's where we're going we're to leave that. But this goes all the way back to Exodus in chapter 11, where we learn that last plague that was going to strike the people of Egypt when God was about to free his people from slavery The Lord instructed Moses and Aaron that the Israelites were to take a lamb that had no blemish, kill that lamb, take the blood and paint it on the doorposts of their heart, and in so doing, they would be protected from the death that was going to come. Let's read that in Exodus chapter 12. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. The blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the house where you're staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And this plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. The imagery here is so rich. This huge festival where 
on people's mind is this unblemished Passover lamb. And here Jesus comes in as the Passover lamb, the one who's going to free us not just year after year, but forever from our sins when we trust in him and when that blood is on the doorposts of our own heart. Verse 13, Jesus tells them, as you go into the city, you're going to find a man carrying a water pitcher. Follow him. He's going to take you to a home. Ask the guy who owns the home where the teacher can set up for this meal. Uh, It seems like Jesus had this all planned and probably did. Men usually didn't carry water pitchers in the ancient East, so it was usually what women did. So that was the signal. That was the sign. These guys, you're going to find this guy carrying the water pitcher. He'll talk to you. There's a room where this man is going to tell you you're going to set up for the Passover meal. In verse 17, in the evening, Jesus arrived with the 12 as they were eating at the table. He said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one turned and asked, am I the one? And that, that experience there, when everyone turns like, am I the one? Am I the one? I'm like where are you at? Until I really think about it. And that's kind of reassuring to me that all the guys at the table were like, is it going to be me? Um, Because I don't know about you, but I would ask that. Um, I know I've failed my Lord many times and it's not, it's not unrealistic to think I'm going to let him down again. So Jesus, you know, are you talking about me and my failure? Are you talking? In fact, before this story goes on in the next few weeks, when we're studying the rest of the gospel of Mark, Almost all of his other disciples, they kind of bail in some one way or another anyway, don't they? So they're all at that place like, man, I'm here with you, Jesus, but I'm trying. Help me here. So anyway, back to the text. Greatly distressed, each one asked, am I the one? He replies, it's the one who is eating from the bowl with me. That's really important because eating together in the ancient East was a a sign of intimacy. You didn't just eat with someone if you didn't know them and they know you. It was something that was a a real expression of intimacy and relationship. So Jesus is saying, the one who I'm dipping in this bowl with, who's very intimate with me, who's close to me, is actually going to betray me. I think it's important to know that this betrayal, probably the last, and take it all the way to the cross, one of the last wounds that Jesus receives before he dies on the cross for us is betrayal. I don't know about you, but that helps me when I'm betrayed or when I'm the betrayer to know that that Jesus knows what betrayal is from someone so close to him. Then Jesus goes on, the son of man must die as the scriptures declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. And this is where, again, it gets the puzzle of Judas is laid out for us. I mean, was he doing this? Is he responsible for this? Or now Jesus is saying, you know, the scriptures are going to be fulfilled. So is is Judas just doing what he needs to do in order to fulfill the scriptures? How can he be responsible for that? But what Jesus does is he pulls back the curtain and lets us see what Yahweh God is doing here in the big grand narrative of redemptive history. Somehow the, the tension between Judas choosing to betray Jesus and the plan of God being fulfilled to sacrifice his son exist at the same time and they don't conflict like they do in my mind and yours sometimes. Somehow those two things are working together, but the one thing that we know for sure from this text is that Jesus is not a helpless victim of a rogue apostle. Jesus is not a helpless victim 
of a rogue apostle here. Instead, he is watching a plan unfold that has been a plan of God from the very beginning of time, from, from that garden experience where sin entered the world. This is the redemptive plan, and Jesus is not a victim. This isn't happening to him as though he's a victim here. He's willingly going to the cross to die for us. So the disciples question among themselves what this could mean. Uh, one of the other gospel accounts said Jesus sneaks out and, or Judas sneaks out. Jesus said, go do what you're going to do. And Judas leaves and, and goes. The other apostles apparently don't know why he's leaving. Is he going to take care of some business for us? What, what is that? A little bit confused. But Jesus then opens up this elaborate meal with them where the elements have very, very great significance. And he starts to unpack them and he gives it new significance, which is of ultimate importance for us today. As they were eating, verse 22 said, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take it for this is my body. Now, when we do communion, we have a table set up where we have juice and little pieces of bread. When Jesus was doing this, there was a feast on the table. There was all kinds of food and drinks on the table. Jesus took the bread, which you normally would take, and he was going to pass it around. But he said, this is going to be different. And he, he gives a new meaning to the bread. He broke it in pieces, and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, this is my body. And he passed it around to them. I want to stop right there, because we do this all at the same time. And it's easy to think Jesus, you know, took the bread and passed it around, then took the juice, passed, or the wine, passed it around. No, it's a meal. The bread symbolizes the presence of Jesus Christ with us. He's saying, I'm breaking the bread in pieces and I'm giving it, all of you take a piece of this, symbolizing that abiding presence of Jesus with all of his disciples. I'm passing myself out to all of you. Um, this isn't, the bread isn't so much pointing to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, like the, the wine will, not that it's not present there, but the wine really is about that. But the bread... We need to let that be what it is. And Jesus is saying, I'm breaking this and I'm giving it to you. Take a piece of this. And we can draw comfort from that today. And as we approach the table later, that that bread reminds us of the abiding presence of Jesus Christ. That while he died and he went to be with the Father in heaven, he is with each and every one of us. And his presence is real. During the Passover meal, there would be four cups of wine on the table. We don't know for sure. Scholars are talk about whether this was the third or fourth cup but after the bread they ate talked for a while then picked up the cup of wine and said this cup he gave it to them all to drink and he said this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people it's poured out as a sacrifice for many I tell you the truth I will not drink the wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of heaven. So whereas the bread pointed to you know, Christ among us, Christ with us, I'm, here's my body that's broken for you, take this. The blood very clearly, the wine very clearly points to the blood of Jesus Christ that's shed on the cross for us. The blood that spilled from Jesus' body is what enacted that covenant of redemption, that covenant of forgiveness, that covenant that God has with us. Jeremiah prophesied about this, by the way, in Jeremiah 31. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves a wife, 
Jesus' death in this new covenant starts a new era in human history. He redefined what this meal is about. And now it's about looking back to God's faithfulness in the history of Israel and God's working in his people and working in us, looking ahead to the kingdom that's going to come. And in this moment, isn't it amazing what God is doing now? It's what we do at every banquet. Jesus will not drink this cup again until he drinks it in the kingdom of God. That's to say there's yet another banquet we need to anticipate. The party's not yet started in a way. When we get to heaven and we know fully what it is that we've been saved from and saved to, we're going to have an enormous celebration. The kingdom of God is this present reality now. It's the work of God in the past and it's the work of God in the future. If you go all the way back to Mark chapter 1, when we started this April, over a year ago, we started studying Mark. We, we read this in Romans, or Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. That's been the message of Jesus this whole time. And now he's talking to his disciples and he's taking what was a Passover meal. He's saying, I'm giving new significance to this, new significance to these elements. Now it's going to be a reminder of my presence with you and my atoning sacrifice for you. And in the context of that meal, he launched a new way for us to remember, a new way for us to remember him. The Passover meal, it says they sang a song and they left. The Passover meal would conclude with the singing of the second part of the halal, which is Psalms 115 through 118. And this was what happens, why we sing after communion. There's a celebration because of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, we're not going to sing it, but before we have communion, I want to read together these verses. So they're going to be up on the screen. I want you to read out loud with me a section of Psalm 118. This is what they would have sang after this meal. Let's read together. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. Songs of joy and victory are sung in the camp of the godly. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. The strong right arm of the Lord is raised in triumph. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. I will not die. Instead, I will live to tell what the Lord has done. Let's pray. We will not die, but instead, God, we can live to tell what you've done. And this entire episode of Jesus and his disciples really pictures what you've done for us. You've saved us. You've rescued us from our brokenness, from our sin, from being the ones who are the betrayers. And you, through the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, have brought us back into fellowship with you. Thank you for the victory that's ours in Jesus. Help us to celebrate this meal in a way that remembers the real, real experience of you helping us to know what this death of yours is all about for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.